I'm Jesse. And I'm Josh. And this is Slice by Slice, a podcast where we dissect and discuss horror films by categories and subgenres, such as killer plants, alien transvestites, franchises, and directors' bodies of work. And of course, we can't dissect and discuss these films in the detail we do without spoilers. So we're really going to do this. <laughs> we're going to attempt it. We're going to do musicals. This is going to be worse than uh, doing a mockumentary. Nah, nah, nah. It's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. <laughs> it's either going to be a really quick episode or a really short episode, depending on how we describe scenes that are sung to us. Yeah, yeah. But this is episode 66, Horror Musicals, and we're recording it on October the 4th, 2021, which is really, really late. <laughs> like beyond late from the other episodes. Yeah, this is this is late enough that I have to make excuses, so... Had to bury a family member, mm-hmm. had to go to a concert, mm-hmm. then had to bury a pet. Well, she got cremated, but still. And, yeah. Uh, and, and then then you had to throw your back out. Yeah, threw my back out. <laughs> We're all over this episode. <laughs> and honestly, I was thinking about this and told Josh about this the other day. I think we missed recording on our normal recording day just as many times as we currently are missing it. <laughs> Except for my kids have lots of after school things now. So where in the past, if we missed a Sunday, which is when we traditionally recorded, we just do it Monday after work. But now I have to take the kids to this or I have to watch one of the kids or two of the kids. And my wife takes one to this and that goes throughout the week. So basically we miss Sunday. We almost entirely missed the whole thing. Uh, I just don't have internet. (laughs) (laughs) And he doesn't have internet. So he's recording from work now. So this is a blast. He's off work for the record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But on to the housekeeping. My news are going to be kind of interesting, I feel like, because we we decided last episode to start condensing the news, and we were supposed to record this on three different occasions, and we're now on the fourth occasion. So I'm going to make do with what I got and uh, manipulate it in my head. So, yay. I put that Netflix was posting a Road to Halloween page so you could see all the Halloween flicks. That's because this was in September originally when I wrote it, so it's live now. I also noticed that like HBO Max did it. I think Hulu did it. Everybody actually has like a, a Halloween landing page now to see everything that they have, which I think is kind of cool. Hey, I'll be looking for that when I get internet again. <laughs> <laughs> and it appears that Netflix is tossing a lot of coins at its Witcher because they greenlit season three before season two's even aired, as well as multiple spinoff shows. They're casting a wide net. <laughs> I had a couple of Eli Roth notes on here, but one of them's kind of old. I was going to say the new season of History of Horror is going to start on the first, but it's now started three days ago. So uh, check that out <laughs> if you like that show. And he also has a show called Ghost Ruined My Life. Eli Roth presents real life ghost stories, and it's going to be on Discovery Plus for Halloween. Yeah, that might be all right. And my last bit of news is about the rights to Friday the 13th, because it looks like Victor Miller, the original screenwriter, has won his first court battle to gain the rights back. So hopefully it goes into a standard legal system with (laughs) rules so that if something happens to him, this doesn't happen again. And maybe we can start getting more Friday the 13th stuff. God knows I'd like to see him in Dead by Daylight. (laughs) As far as announcements go, we're basically a monthly podcast at this point in time it was not intentional but the amount of delays we've had the past three months has been insane and i do not see the next few months getting any better so we're gonna have this episode for you guys right here at the beginning of october so technically you're gonna get two this month because you know we're gonna do a fucking halloween episode fuck yeah we don't know what we're doing yet but we're giving you guys a halloween episode right and 
we'll do one for November. I mean, hell, if we're lucky and we don't get behind, we'll do two for November, like we're supposed to. So yeah, one for November. (laughs) And then we'll do our Christmas episode before Christmas, of course, so that we can go on vacation and we'll take our normal break where the next season doesn't start until the end of January, beginning of February. And hopefully we can figure our shit out somewhere in between. Yeah. Yeah. But until then we're monthly ish. (laughs) (laughs) My updates and corrections. God, this section's always interesting when it was over a month ago. Um, (laughs) Because I put shorthand notes here. So Brian Gunn is James Gunn's brother, and Mark Gunn is James Gunn's cousin, and they wrote Brightburn. Uh, I think I said his brothers did it, but it's actually his brother or one of his brothers and a cousin. Okay. Brenda James, who played Brenda on Slither, has not only not worked with James Gunn again, but has not acted other than a couple episodes of Stargate Atlanta since Slither, but she was pretty active up until then. So I think it's kind of odd that she like was in that movie and then just stopped. Gun ruined it for her. <laughs> well, don't forget, she um, didn't eat meat <laughs> and had to lay in the fat suit and didn't read her script before she signed on to the job. So maybe it ruined acting for her. Who knows? And the last bit of news I put is that Slither had an estimated budget of $15 million and only grossed $12.8 million worldwide. That wasn't Damn. domestic. So when I said it was a bomb, it bombed. <laughs> <laughs> but it has such a cult following since then. And I love that movie, and I've actually watched it again since the episode because I needed something on in the background, and I like that film. Nice. I actually have one on Boko Experiment. Um, oh, I called a character by the wrong name because that's what I did in my notes. And then you just went for the ride with me. We called Vince Vance or Vance Vince, whichever one it is. I was wrong. (laughs) It was just close enough that I didn't catch it when you said it or when I edited it. So, (laughs) Or when I reviewed it. (laughs) Your wife caught it, didn't she? I think so. (laughs) (laughs) As far as what we watched, since it's been six months, I have a rather lengthy list. First off, I had been dreaming of seeing Malignant by James Wan for ever, basically, as you guys have heard me say. And I saw the film and I fucking loved it. And I got what James Wan was trying to do with it, unlike what some people thought or did not think. And I honestly think James Wan went to Warner Brothers and said, hey, I've made you guys what, like three, four billion dollars now? I'm going to make something that I want to fucking make and you can't say anything. And what we got was a crazy exploitation Jollo flick. (laughs) And it was awesome. I enjoyed it. If you go in expecting a serious movie, though, you're not going to like it. I watched night books on Netflix with my kids. It's made for kids, but one of my kids left the room scared and couldn't finish it. But it is a Sam Raimi and Rob Tappert produced Netflix movie with a witch that has uh, kidnapped kids and they have to do things for her. She'll like turn them into statues or kill them or eat their souls or something. I don't want to go into it, but one of the kids is really good at writing horror stories or night books. And he has to write her a new horror story every day and read it to her. Yeah. The, the wife put this on our list before we lost internet and I'm looking forward to actually checking it out. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. Obviously a kid's flick and reminds me of like some of those movies we cover from the eighties and stuff that we watched as kids. Like they did a good job of, of doing that and making it entertaining for adults. Okay. And Kristen Ritter plays the witch in it, and I like her in pretty much fucking everything. Nice. I also watched the first episode of Creep Show, and it was not bad. That's the thing about Creep Show. It's not great. It's just Creep Show. Yeah, it was and all I right. like it. Yeah, it was all right. I, however, watched all of Midnight Mass 
And I'm not going to spoil anything for anybody who hasn't watched it because I'm not going to lie. It went a different direction than I assumed it was going to go. You kind of catch on part way if you pay attention, but it was an awesome show and it was very Mike Flanagan esque. Yeah, we're we're pretty deep into it, and uh, yeah, you're right. It is very slow, <laughs> <laughs> slow in a good way. I also unfortunately finished all of American Horror Story: Red Tide, which man, it was it was really good until the end. Yeah, you talk about fucking phoning it in at the end, and. I know we regularly say they shit the bed on the finales and so does most people online from what I have seen, but they really, really shit the bed on Red Tide. And I don't know. We'll have to see if they do better with Death Valley, but my hopes are not high at this time. <laughs> I started Death Valley. The first episode was kind of entertaining, but okay. in some ways it was just like, I don't know what the fuck they're doing here, but it, it had some cool sci-fi elements that they haven't really done before. And my wife and I have been watching Only Murders in the Building, which is a Steve Martin and Martin Short show on Hulu. Okay. With Selena Gomez. And I didn't know I liked Selena Gomez acting, but apparently I do. <laughs> Even if the, maybe she can only play one role. I don't know. I've never seen her act other than this role, but she's great in it for the character she's playing. But basically a murder happens in this ritzy New York hotel that they live in. And they're all addicted to listening to Serial, basically but it's not called serial and they all bond over the podcast and a murder happens. And like, we'll start our own podcast and it's Steve Martin and Martin short. Come on. <laughs> it's fucking great. And my wife and I watched the guilty the other day, which is more thriller and suspense than horror, but it just came out on Netflix and it is a remake of a foreign film. And it's starring Jake Gyllenhaal as a nine one one operator who is trying to solve a case while on the phone with somebody. And it's fucking Keeps you on the edge of your seat and it was awesome. Okay. And a random watch. My wife and I saw The Way Down, God, Greed, and the Cult of Gwen Shamblin on HBO Max. Fucking mouthful. <laughs> and it is. And marathon to that shit last night. It's only three hours. It's three episodes. It is fucking crazy to see this religious cult and what happened of it. So not horror adjacent whatsoever. Actually, it's fucking terrifying because it's real life. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> but if you're into those kinds of things, it was kind of cool to see. So what'd you watch? Malignant, of course, was super excited for that. Really fun. By the time it got to the end of it, it was like, hey, need to watch that one again. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure we'll go into great details about it at some point. Um, I did get to catch Superhost. All right. It was all right. I like Crazy yeah. Crazy Chick was was the best thing in the movie. There's stuff towards the yeah. end that's so illogical that it just ruins it. Um, my favorite thing about that was the top comment on IMDb was watch Creep 2. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, American Horror Story, but we already beat that horse. But we watched Old, which is a complete Ooh. waste of time and money for anyone. That's what I heard from everybody. I was actually surprised you just said you watched it. Yeah. After, well, the wife watched it and I was in the room. So I was in and out. But yeah, every, yeah shit sandwich. Like, so bad. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't watch it. M. Night Shyamalan, man, he really doesn't have it in the middle. He either nails it or kills it. Whatever, man, I can watch fucking uh, The Happening over and over again. I laugh my ass off every time I watch that movie. <laughs> you just watch it as a, as a comedy. It's great. Yeah. But unless you have anything to add, that, that's all I got for housekeeping shit. No, let's go. So let's see how well we can handle musicals. So I am covering 1986's Little Shop of Horrors. Feed me, Seymour. 
Exactly. <laughs> Love this movie. I've watched it since I was a kid. My kids watch it and like it. And it's a lot of fun. And I got to find out a lot of interesting stuff I didn't know for this episode. So it's awesome. So Frank Oz directed it. And he directed The Dark Crystal and Muppets Take Manhattan, What About Bob, Bowfinger, the 2004 Step for Wives, all cool flicks. But what Frank Oz is famous to me for is he's the voice of Yoda. Damn, yeah. And a lot of Sesame Street characters, or at least used to be a lot of Sesame Street characters. I'm pretty sure he did quite a few voices on Labyrinth when we discussed that film as well. Yeah, yeah. But it was cool to see that he directed this. Written by, this is going to be an interesting section here. <laughs> so what a lot of people don't know is this musical actually came from a 1960s Roger Corman movie called Little Shop of Horrors that was not a musical. He directed it and helped write it, but it was primarily written by Charles B. Griffith, who did the original Death Race, as well as a lot of 50s and 60s era Corman type flicks, right? And they, they could have all been Corman movies, but they made the movie. And then in 1982, somebody decided it should be a musical for Broadway. I don't know who, <laughs> but, it, but it worked. And Howard Ashman wrote the lyrics to the musical. And by the time this got turned into a movie, which I'm going to go into all of this in a little more detail in a minute. Howard Ashman ended up writing the screenplay, okay? And Howard Ashman was famous for doing lots of Disney things. He did all the music for Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, and Aladdin, right? Nice. I think this was actually his first, like, live-action movie. <laughs> so, basically, he wrote a lot of lyrics for, for films we watched growing up. But the story of how we get there is going to be fascinating in a minute after I go over the cast. And... I don't, I don't think I mentioned anything Roger Corman made, but I don't feel like I have to. I think everybody probably knows who I Roger Corman so. is if they're listening to this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, the cast. There's a lot of people in here. I'm not going to list everybody. I'm just going to do a primary cast. We have Seymour, played by Rick fucking Moranis, Ghostbusters, Spaceballs, and Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, amongst so much else, right? But those are just the first three to jump out to me. Audrey was played by Ellen Green, who did lots of TV. And Pushing Daisies was the only show that really stood out to me. Okay. But she was also in Leon the Professional. And the most interesting thing is she was the original Audrey on Broadway. Yeah, yeah. And she got to play the role in the movies. That was cool. And Mushnick was played by Vincent Gardenia. And he was also primarily TV, but he was in Death Wish 1 and 2 and Moonstruck and a bunch of other shit. Oh, hell yeah. Moonstruck. Woo. <laughs> I know you had to watch that as a kid, too. You're damn right. Everybody watched that for some reason. I think we used to have to watch it at Granny's house, right? Didn't you love that movie? Man, but I've seen the shit. And the last person I want to mention is the voice of Audrey 2, which was done by Levi Stubbs, who was the lead singer for The Four Tops, and the voice of Mother Brain on the Captain N and the Game Master and Super Mario World TV shows when we were kids. You're damn right he was. <laughs> so he sang and then did Audrey 2 and Mother Brain from Metroid, which is fucking awesome. <laughs> and as far as special effects go, metric shit ton of people involved in this film. The special effects were out of this world for its time and all practical. But I wanted to put one name in there, and that was Lyle Conway, because Lyle designed and built Audrey, too. 
which yeah, was manned by like 80 puppeteers, I think. Yeah, it's fucking insane. sight to behold, man. All right, on to the, the backstory and interesting facts before I dive into this movie. Like I said, it was originally a Roger Corman movie that came out in 1960, and it was much, much darker. It was also Jack Nicholson's first film. Oh, nice. He played the crazy dentist who uh, liked pain and might be a, a semi-masochist. And Roger Corman was working on another film in a studio, and it wrapped, and he saw one of the sets that was in the studio that was about to get torn down. And he talked the studio into keeping the set up for him for like two weeks because he thought he could write a movie in a few days and film it in a couple of days. And he just wanted to see if he could do it. <laughs> so he spent three days making the plant, getting a cast together and heading to the set. And then he shot the film in two days. So nice. three days pre-production, two days production. No post-production. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and there weren't even really rehearsals. Like they learned their script standing there and, and just kind of went with it and shot Roger Corman just wanted to see if he could make a movie in two days and he did it. Yeah. And I watched it. I had never seen it before. It's uh, on YouTube. I don't know if it's on other means and higher quality, but I did watch it on YouTube and it was actually a interesting watch. Okay. There were quite a few differences. <laughs> <laughs> Primarily. It's not a musical. There is no singing whatsoever. <laughs> Seymour is not an orphan. That's raised by Mushnick. He actually lives with his, Mom who's addicted to like old school cough syrup that has narcotics in it. Basically. Oh, nice. He has to keep getting it for him. And Seymour feeds a shit ton of people to the plant throughout the original movie. Like just keeps going and getting people and feeding it to him. And he gets busted at the end of the film when the media and police come to the shop and the plant starts to sprout its buds. But all of the buds have the face of all the victims. That were Just fed like to the Just like Freddy Krueger. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Roger Corman invented this in the 60s. And all these people were missing. So when it was in the newspaper and the police were there for, I don't remember what fucking reason, they see all the faces and they're like, oh shit, this guy had something to do with it. And Seymour goes on the run from the police and it's a ridiculous chase. The cops are ridiculous in this movie too. And after he gets away, he comes back to the plant at the end and ends up getting eaten by it. And then everyone shows back up at the shop the next day and it sprouts one more bud and it's Seymour's face crying. And he says he didn't mean to do it. Oh, so those are the differences there, but it's a different flick, man. But in 1982, Howard Ashman decided to turn this movie into a very, very successful comedy horror Broadway play. And David Geffen of Geffen Records and Sony DreamWorks fame saw it and wanted to adapt it into a film. And he got the rights to do so. And he was talking to a lot of his friends because he knew just about everybody in the industry. And originally Spielberg was going to produce it. And Martin Scorsese was going to direct it. That that's, that's like overreaching. <laughs> <laughs> All three of them went in on it and was going to throw money in on it. And they wanted to make a movie for $6 million. They thought they could do the whole thing for six mil. Shit fell through and everyone ended up busy by the time they could actually make the movie. And they ended up not going that route and had Frank Oz direct it as well as the writer of the, the lyrics from the play do the screenplay. And the film ended up costing $25 million to make. And it was the most expensive Warner brothers movie ever made at the time, surpassing aliens, which was at 18 mil. They shot it on the back lot. Where'd the, I mean, I know the, the plant, but where'd the money go? <laughs> the plant, all the plant and all the puppeteers. 
and <laughs> fucking union workers. <laughs> exactly. And, and that 25 mil is a far cry from the 30 K Roger Corbin spent to make the original. Damn. Yeah. But, Oh, here's my notes. I can correct myself right here. You don't have to wait till the next episode. The movie was all practical effects. Like I said, and the final version of Audrey 2 took 60 technicians to operate. Jesus Christ. That I pulled out of my ass. You didn't say Jesus Christ when I said 80. I thought you said eight. Oh, no, no. I said 80, but it was 60. Oh, well, Jesus Christ back then, too. <laughs> Last couple of random facts. The dental tools that Steve Martin pulls out are the exact same tools that were used on the set for Tim Burton's Batman for Jack Nicholson to get the Joker surgery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shines in the same camera angle and everything, which is funny because Nicholson was in the original Little Shop of Horrors. And this movie got turned into a Saturday morning cartoon that I used to watch every Saturday. It came on before or after the Toxic Crusaders. Yeah. yeah. And it was also a board game, which was kind of fun. We had to try to feed things into the plant. Oh, Nice. I never had the board game, but I saw it and wanted it. <laughs> that mousetrap. Yeah. <laughs> but it's Audrey, too. Come on. I know, right? But that's it for the backstory and any other little facts or tidbits of information I'll go through as I do the synopsis. We open up with a, with a scroll, kind of like a Star Wars flick here. And it says, on the 23rd day of the month of September, in an early year of a decade, not too long before our own, the human race suddenly encountered a deadly threat to its very existence. And this terrifying enemy surfaced, as such enemies often do, in the seemingly most innocent and unlikely of places. So we cut to Skid Row and see it in all of its glory, and we get the title card, and we're introduced to the Greek chorus who can mysteriously stay dry in the rain. And their names are Crystal, Ronette, and Chiffon, and they're each named after famous girl groups from the 50s and 60s, the Crystals, the Ronettes, and the Chiffons. And they are the same thing as like our Greek chorus that you would see in old plays, and you'd even see them in Shakespearean plays where they pop up and they kind of narrate what's going on every now and then, let you know what's going on with the story. And that's very much their purpose in this film and the play. And two of them appeared on Martin together, which yep. was kind of crazy. So, which was just a few years after this, I think. I don't I don't think that was very late into the 90s when that show came out. I could be wrong, though. I just remember watching it a lot. Yeah, yeah. But they built out the Little Shop of Horrors theme song, and if you haven't heard it in a while, break it out on YouTube or something, it'll get stuck in your head for a good week or two, and you can live in the world we lived in. Little Shop, Little Shop of Horrors, Little Shop, Little Shop of but the gist of this song is that there's a little shop in town and it has a tear in there and you'd be best off to run away. So they're warning us. <laughs> Harbinger. Exactly. We dive from the opening credits and immediately meet our principal cast at Mushnick's flower shop. We can see that Seymour is a klutz. Audrey is in an abusive relationship and Mr. Mushnick is both a shrewd businessman and very protective of his employees. And a few things to take away from the scene is that Seymour is in love with Audrey and the store's not doing very well. And if you listen closely to the radio in the background, John Candy's the host of the radio show. And he lets us know that there was recently an eclipse during the day. Mushnick then shoes our Greek chorus away from the front window where they're leaning up uh, in their civvies, right? They're not dressed up like in their normal singing style. And he gets on to them for not being in school. And they explain that they're on a split shift. We went 
to school till fifth grade, then we split. So do they get wet in the rain when they're not in their singing uniform? Is that like, is that the power of the outfit? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It, it wasn't raining. I did see on one of the behind the scenes, they said, no matter how hard we tried to keep them dry, they still got wet. But I couldn't tell. It always looked like it was dry around them, which was kind of neat. Yeah. But after they smart off to Mushnick, they walk down the street past an alley and we see a bag lady walking down the alley singing a banger about Skid Row. Down on Skid Row. From this song, we can gather that Skid Row is a real shithole. <laughs> and we're told this by both the chorus and all of the townies. And Audrey even jumps in to let us know how bad guys and relationships are all over the place in Skid Row. And Seymour lets us know that he was an orphan that was taken in by Mushnick and given a rather great benefits package. He took me in, gave me shelter, a bed, crust of bread, and a job. Treats me like dirt, calls me a slob, which I am. <laughs> the main thing to take away, though, is that no one wants to be in Skid Row and no one has any clue how to get out of there. Learn to code. <laughs> we then cut to Mushnick, Seymour and Audrey at work, and we can see via time lapse that there are no customers all day. I'm assuming it's the same day, but it doesn't really fucking matter. Nobody comes in. <laughs> and Seymour tells them that maybe they should try a new direction. And he goes down to the basement to get the special plant he had been taken care of. And he brings it up the stairs. And we can see that it's some sort of Venus flytrap type plant. And Seymour says that if they put such a strange and interesting plant in the window, it would draw customers in to see it. And Mushnick goes on a rant about how that's the dumbest thing he's ever heard. And then a guy comes in and interrupts him because he was drawn in by that strange and unusual plant in the window. And they let him know that it's called Audrey too. He named it after Audrey. And with the assistance of the Greek course, Seymour tells us where he got the plant. He was in Chinatown looking at plants. And then the total eclipse of the sun, not the heart, the sun <laughs> happened. And we see a beam of light come from space and hit a table in the background. And, and he says he heard a hum, which we can hear as well. And anyways, he bought the fucking plant for a buck 95 and this guy randomly buys a hundred dollars worth of roses since he's in there to see the strange, unusual plant. <laughs> it's ridiculous. And the way he delivers it, he might as well be a fucking robot intentionally. It's fucking fantastic. And if you watch with a keen eye, you'll notice that the strange customer is Nigel from spinal tap. <laughs> he's in a bunch of other shit, but he's, he's fucking Nigel. <laughs> He's not one of the tiny people of Stonehenge. <laughs> <laughs> I can, I fucking love that movie. I haven't seen that movie since I was 15, probably, but I still remember it vividly. Oh, I hope it's still funny. That's <laughs> why so I haven't watched it yet. <laughs> but anyways, the plant continues to draw people in the store and they're selling flowers like crazy and they close the shop up for the day and Mushnick wants to take them all out for dinner because business was so well. And Audrey says she can't go because she has a date. Mushnick says that she does not need a date. She needs major medical, right? Because she keeps coming in beat from her boyfriend. And she says that she doesn't have anyone else. And he makes really good money. And she just leaves, right? She's going on the date. She's going to deal with it because she wants to get out of Skid Row that bad is what I got out of it. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and spousal abuse is not okay and it's not funny. But her boss is funny. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The way he says things. And even, I mean... The crazy extremes they show the, you don't actually see the abuse. I guess you see her get slapped one time. Yeah. But like her cast, I'm doing uh, air quotations. 
which I'll get to later, is kind of ridiculous and just anything with the dentist. When we get there, I'll, we'll wait. Yeah, yeah. But Seymour still wants to go out to dinner with Mushnick, and he wants to know if they're still going. And as he says this, Audrey, too, just kind of droops over and passes out or dies, right? And Mushnick's like, fuck no, we're not going out to dinner. You have to stay all night and nurse this plant back to health so it'll be in the window tomorrow to draw customers in. The chorus starts to do wop, so we know that shit's about to get real. And Seymour starts sinking to his plant and wants to know why it won't grow for him. He begs the plant and accidentally cuts himself on like a thorn on some roses and the plant starts to pucker up for the blood. And when he figures out what's going on, he obliges. I've given you sunlight. I've given you rain. Looks like you're not happy. Bless I open a vein. I'll give you a few drops. If that'll appease. But the plant seems to be very happy with these few drops of blood and starts to rapidly grow as Seymour leaves the room and it even busts out of its Maxwell House coffee can, <laughs> like in the scene, right? And Seymour doesn't see any of this. He was going to bed in his uh, basement where he stays at the shop, right? And he didn't see any of that happen. We cut to another day and we can see that Seymour is in the waiting room of a radio station with Audrey too, who's trying to bite a chick's butt. I just want to point yeah. that out. And we can see in the recording booth that John Candy is every character on the show and talks to himself in different mics and does sound effects of different things in the room. And it's pretty fucking funny. And it's a great John Candy role. Yes. He was actually offered the role of God. I wish I would have wrote it down. It was an important role. It was like Mushnick or something like that. And he wanted to take like a smaller role because I guess he was really busy at the time. So they, they, created this character of Wink Wilkinson for him. And I thought it was a nice little scene. I like seeing John Candy and stuff because he was in everything when I was a kid and then he died, you know, so. Yeah. But the sound effects he does with different things is ridiculous and all the scenarios he sets up. It's, it's, it's good old school comedy. And we find out that the show's Wink Wilkinson's weird world, right, <laughs> as he says. And there's some weird stuff on there is what he says. And we find out that Seymour has been all over the newspapers about this crazy plant he has. So he's on there so Wink can see the weird plant. And Wink wants to know the story. And he tells him the story about how he found the plant and gives a plug to the Mushnick's flower shop, right? Forgets to say the address, which Mushnick wasn't happy about, but he said it's still advertising. Say the address. Yeah. We can see that night that Audrey has her arm in a sling. I wrote sling in my notes, but when I watched it again the other day to get caught back up for the podcast, I realized it is referred to as a cast, but it is basically like a black net. Yeah, it's, it's elbow lingerie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, or like a shawl or something. You wear yeah. it at a funeral. And she's got it tied around her like cow-looking dress. It's like white with black ink blots, right? And it, it looks ridiculous. <sighs> and it's from her boyfriend, she says. And the chorus girls are back in their civvies and tell her that she needs to dump the chump and go with the guy with the glasses. And Audrey breaks into a song about how she's currently dating a semi-sadist and that she would love to be with Seymour, but she just doesn't think it could happen. And we see her vision of what the future could be if her and Seymour got together and we see them married and with kids and they're out of Skid Row and somewhere green with a giant matte painting for a house and some Brady Bunch AstroTurf grass being cut. It's fantastic. And spoofed hilariously in Family Guy between Chris and the ch the friggin' child molester down the street. Jesus. Have you seen that? 
No, no. And the amount of times I describe a scene on this podcast, you're like, oh, and when they did it in Family Guy, and I'm like, what the fuck? It's the old man with the walker down the street singing the song and imagining he's married to Chris. Jesus. Somewhere that's green. It's like, it's so fucking good, man. Oh, my God. It's crazy. Anyways. We then get a montage scene of Seymour having to constantly feed Audrey to blood while the chorus sings a sarcastic song about how much fun Seymour's having right now. (laughs) And we cut to another day and we can see that Mushnick's shop is still staying packed and Audrey too is getting pretty big. And we can also see that Seymour is very forgetful, probably due to the loss of blood he's experiencing. (laughs) And he forgot to take some arrangements to a funeral. And luckily, Audrey's there to throw something together real quick and cheer him up. The whole scene's ridiculous because he's getting yelled at. And he goes back there and she's like, what's it for? Bar mitzvah, birthday, whatever. And he says, funeral. And she's like, hand me the, what is it, the tulips? Yeah. And she literally throws, she cuts the end, throws them in a vase and puts like glitter on them and <laughs> done. Yeah. She really I- sucks at her job. <laughs> and and it, it, it's a really funny scene because in the original movie, there's a woman that keeps coming in to buy flowers. And a different family member dies. And, like, she loses, like, 12 family members in the 1960 movie, right? Damn. And that's most of the Mushnick business is these funerals. And that's why Mushnick says, her family's dropping like flies out of nowhere because ah, it was, like, a throwback. Okay. But like I said, Audrey saves the day and gets the plants ready for Seymour so he doesn't lose his job. And he breaks into his benefits package again. She took me out of the Skid Row home for boys when I was just a little tight. Gave me a warm place to stay. Floors to sweep, toilets to clean, and every other Sunday off. We then find out that Audrey has a date that night and a chance for more fractures, right? And she says that her boyfriend's a professional. You'll be a dentist. You have a talent for causing things. This might actually be my favorite song and scene in the entire film, hands down. <laughs> I think it's a lot of fun. Steve Martin had too much fun with the role. And he's obviously doing some sort of Elvis impersonation with the hair and the way he's acting. Oh, yeah. And I'm pretty sure his hair was white back then. And he's wearing like a black wig or something. He's ridiculous, though. He goes all into it. And he sings about all of the animals he liked to hurt and kill as a kid. And all the jobs that his mother told him he wouldn't be able to do so that he should be a dentist so he can inflict pain on people all day, and that's how he could cope with his problems, right? I'm your dentist, and I get off on the pain I inflict. The American dream. The scene shows how much everyone is afraid of him and how violent he is. Some of this was his idea, like punching the nurse. He hits her like twice in the scene. That wasn't in the script. He's like, I think it'd be funny if I just fucking deck the nurse right here and knock her out, right? Oh, yeah. It's great. And him hitting the laughing gas is great. Yeah. Like, just take a hit and just start laughing hysterically and then go back into talking like an asshole. And I I love it. It's great. (laughs) And it was really cool that I was watching Only Murders in the Building while we were getting ready to do this episode. I'm like, hey, it's more Steve Martin. (laughs) But we have a hard cut from this song to Seymour taking out the trash and hearing a crazy laugh as Steve Martin literally flies in on his Harley and jumps off of it and starts hitting the nitrous oxide again, right? He's like just taking bumps off of it and laughing. And he offers some to Seymour who declines and... 
He's about to kick Seymour's ass for trying to kick him out of the store or not let him in. And so Audrey comes out and saves him. And Steve figures out that he's the plant guy that's all over the news. And he's a, a big dick to Audrey right here because, you know, she didn't call him doctor. And she interrupted him talking because he couldn't remember fucking Seymour's name. And it's a uh, shitty Elvis impersonation, just like by Kurt Russell in Big Trouble in Little China. <laughs> I think the dentist can't get it up unless he's he's addressed that way, like in all seriousness, like he's that far. <laughs> <laughs> he's fucking crazy to dick, and it's it's a crazy role to see him in, and I don't know. Like I said, it, it's a crazy character. And that character was Jack Nicholson in the original one, but there was no singing. So it was less funny of a masochist and more Jack Nicholson laughing like the Joker constantly while torturing people. Yeah, that sounds more disturbing. It's pretty creepy. You should watch the YouTube movie. It's like an hour and six minutes or something. Okay. Like it wasn't a very long flight. But Audrey and the dentist head off on their date, handcuffs and all, right? Because he wants to make sure she brought the fucking handcuffs. And if I remember correctly, that's why her arm was in the quote unquote cast was because a handcuff accident because Mushnick says, what did he do? Blah, blah, blah. And she's like, no handcuffs actually. Yeah, yeah, that's right. (laughs) But Seymour goes inside to his plant and talks to it a bit until it passes out again. But it's much more dramatic this time because it's a larger plant. And he tries to plead with it about how he doesn't have any more blood to squeeze out. And then it perks up a bit. Feed me. Must be blood. Must be fresh. Audrey, too, then busts into a song about needing to be fed fresh blood and how it can make all of Seymour's dreams come true if he can just bring some fresh bodies to eat. Hey, I'm your genie. I'm your friend. I'm your willing slave. Seymour, of course, declines feeding bodies to the plant. And Audrey, too, says that he could help him get any girl he wants, especially the one he really wants. If he could just find someone to 86, I love the way he says that. (laughs) And Seymour starts to think of all the shit he could have if he was famous and snaps out of it. When Audrey too says that he could find someone that deserves to die. I keep referring to Audrey too, as a, he, I think technically it's a, she, but it's the fact that it's Levi. Stumps talking. It's a, he to me. Exactly. I don't care. It's, it's totally androgynous. It doesn't matter. (laughs) I mean, it's a plant and the way it makes buds later, I'm assuming it's asexual. So it's both. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to call it various things depending on the state of my (laughs) notes. Okay. And what day I was writing that part. So here we go. But Seymour says that he doesn't know who that could be. And then he hears a Harley in the distance. (laughs) And the dentist and Audrey show up at her apartment, which is mysteriously across the street from the flower shop. And he watches the dentist abuse her from the window. Right, he slaps her because she forgot something. I don't remember if she forgot to call him doctor or didn't have the bondage gear with this guy. Who fucking knows? Anything sets this guy off. Yeah. This also sets Seymour off. (laughs) And him and Audrey, too, break into a duet. Guy sure looks like plant food to me. The guy sure looks like plant food to me. The guy sure looks like plant food to me. You need blood and he's got more than enough. He's got more than enough. 
Seymour's all in on this now, right? He's going to feed the plant. He's going to get rid of Audrey's abusive boyfriend, and they can live happily ever after. Fuck yeah. It's a solid plan. Nobody needs this guy on the earth, right? So we cut back to the dentist office on the next day, and we can see an excited Bill Murray waiting to get some painful <laughs> dental work done. And he's very jealous of this girl's headgear and how they had to partially remove her jaw because he wants something like that done to him. And the dentist grabs him and takes him to get a root canal. Cause he's like, I, I need a root canal. I can feel it back here. And the dentist keeps telling Bill Murray to shut up. And Bill Murray likes it. He likes to get yelled at. He looks like he's getting off every time he tells him to uh, shut his mouth or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And almost all of this was ad libbed by Bill Murray. Oh, okay. He had very few set lines and he made up so much shit that Steve Martin had to act around that it was almost impossible to edit the scene, apparently, <laughs> because it was never the same shit anytime he said it. It's fucking great. But it's it's really funny because he sits down in the chair and the dentist is getting all the gear ready and he's got like his own foam things to put in his mouth to separate his gums from his teeth. And he sets the mirror up for him. He's got his own apron like like he loves going to the dentist. <laughs> and while he's doing all this, he's going on and on about, you know, I see this dentist on Sundays. This one's on Mondays. This one on Wednesdays because he goes and gets constant dental work because he likes the pain, basically. Right. Yep. And since he likes pain, he's found the right place. Unfortunately, this isn't fun for the dentist, and he doesn't want to hurt somebody if they like it. Yeah, because now it's ruining his boner. Exactly. We see Seymour come into the waiting room because I think the nurse is on lunch or something, and he has a gun, and he hears the commotion in the, uh, I guess, the dental room. I don't know what you call it. (laughs) (laughs) And when we cut back into the room, we can see that Bill's literally getting off on the whole thing, (laughs) and... The dentist kicks him out and calls him a sicko, which is ridiculous because he's a sicko himself. Yes. And then he grabs Seymour in the waiting room now that he's really angry, and he tells him he wants to rip out all his teeth. And he's like, does this scare you? And he's holding a a tool up. He's like, I'm terrified. He's like, good, you know. (laughs) And he brings him back there. And he's got to make up for what Bill just did to him, right? He breaks out an antique rusty drill that you have to, like, pump by foot to make spin, right? <laughs> yes. And he says it's going to inflict some real pain, and he decides he's going to need gas for this. And Seymour's like, oh, thank God, I didn't think you were going to use any. He said, no, 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 the gas is for me, right? <laughs> and he puts this rig on me and finished <laughs> that I, if I would have thought of this ahead of time, I would have built this for Halloween this year. <laughs> So I'm going to do it next year. Okay. But it's this rig where he's got this like whole fucking harness on that goes around him and makes an airtight seal around his mouth and nose with these pumps that blow up and down. And then he's got the nitrous oxide on his back, right? Yes. And it's so and good. Qu- the little bladders on the side fucking yeah. over the top, man. <laughs> yes. And it, it takes up his entire upper torso and he cranks the gas on and he starts getting giggly and <laughs> the faces he makes, it's ridiculous. And he starts to get really, really fucked up and he starts <laughs> laughing at everything, including this like picture of this dog with diseased teeth. He showed Seymour to scare him earlier and he laughs at that and then Seymour pulls a gun out and he starts to laugh at that and he tries to turn the tank off and he breaks the knobs off. And he's like, you wouldn't help me out, would you? No, I don't suppose you would. (laughs) He just keeps laughing. And he ODs on the gas. 
But we cut to the flower shop and we see Seymour clumsily smuggle the body back, right? Like he's dragging it everywhere. It's thumping down the stairs. It's leaving a trail of blood. Lightest grown man ever. (laughs) Right, right. And he goes to feed it to Audrey too, but Audrey too wants her food chopped up, right? Like my children. Gotta cut the food up first. (laughs) So Seymour takes it into the shop to oblige and Mushnick comes by the shop and sees Seymour axing the shit out of the body, right? We then get a bit of a montage of Seymour feeding the parts to the plant and we cut to the next morning and he's shaking in his chair and hasn't slept yet, right? But he hears a police radio outside and he looks and sees Audrey talking to the police and he waits until they drive off to run out to her and ask what they were talking about. And she says they're looking for Scarillo or whatever the fucking dentist's name is and they suspect foul play. They run off into an alley and Seymour asks her, if it would be that bad of a thing if something actually happened to him, and she says she would save a fortune in Epsom salt and ace bandages, right? If they broke up. God, that's so bad. <laughs> it is, it is, but they did it in a very comedic way in this play. Audrey thinks she deserves a creep like him because she's done terrible things herself. She was a go-go dancer. Oh, and that's no. where she met him. I know, right? Like, oh my God, I deserve to get beat because I danced some boots with pasties on. What the fuck? No, you don't deserve to get beat. But she met him there, and Seymour tells her not to think about that creep anymore and that she is a nice person and not to think about her past, even though there's not really anything wrong with her past. He then tells her how he feels about her, and he breaks in his song, and he lets her know that he's there to take care of her and he'll provide for her. Suddenly Seymour Standing beside you this song's so terrible, and it's the one that always gets stuck in my head. <laughs> it is so catchy, and this is the song where you can hear the true power of Ellen Green's singing voice, though, because she's talking in this ridiculous, squeaky, mousy voice, yeah. and she sings like that most of the time, except for in this song where she belts into the, you're like, oh, yeah, she's a Broadway star, <laughs> like, out of nowhere, and uh, the fake accent's gone in that scene, but it's a very catchy song. Yeah. Anyways... He finally kisses the girl and he walks her home, which shouldn't be very far because she's across the street. <laughs> <laughs> Audrey, too, saw the whole thing from the window and starts to scheme. Seymour goes down to the basement only to be startled by Mushnick, who lets him know that he saw him with the axe and all of the blood splatter in the room and the trails, and he knows what's going on. And then he knows Seymour was in love, but he didn't think he would murder for it. And Seymour says that he chopped up the body but he didn't kill him. He explains this as Audrey too breaks into a song. And of course the chorus provides a backing track. <laughs> the song is about how Audrey too would help him and take care of him. If he would just feed her. And these are supposed to be like the thoughts going on in Seymour's head as he's being walked around by gunpoint, basically from Mushnick. Right. Yeah. And, Mushnick continues to threaten Seymour with the gun and walk him through the store and says that if he leaves the plant and runs away, he won't tell anyone what he saw, right? As long as he doesn't come back and tells him how to take care of the plant because he needs it for the shop. And all of this is happening as Mushnick is backing up closer and closer to Audrey too, who has her mouth open and Seymour sees what's happening. <laughs> and Mushnick gets a little too close and he falls in.
next scene jumps straight into another song showing how much fame Seymour's getting with magazines and TV and news and whatnot. And it's sung by the chorus girls and all of the press and business people that Seymour's meeting with and talking to. And we can tell that Seymour's feeling guilty through the scene via song, right? So it's kind of like prose writing in a novel we can hear in his head. And the song's called The Meek Shall Inherit the Earth. And that title pretty much sums up the song, yeah, right? Yeah. He makes it back to the shop to get interviewed on live TV about the plant, which is now fucking gigantic. And if I didn't <laughs> mention this earlier, there were actually three sets for Mushnick's flower shop and the shop got bigger as the plant got bigger. Oh, okay. Like you can notice it goes from like a rundown shithole to a nice flower shop. But if you pay attention, it actually yeah. gets bigger and more elaborate as okay. it gets cleaned up. It's, it's kind of neat, but the shop's pretty big now. And Audrey two is fucking huge. And we see this gigantic fucking plant just collapse and fall over like at the beginning when it was in the coffee can. Right. And Seymour tries to explain to Audrey two that he can't feed it right now. <laughs> And then at this point, I'm going to call it the third act because our protagonist has hit rock bottom, right? (laughs) (laughs) And Audrey comes out to the alley to check on Seymour and lets him know that people are going to be coming the next day from the TV show with a check for him. And he realizes that he could use that money to get him and Audrey out of Skid Row and I guess not do his TV show. He doesn't understand how contracts work. (laughs) And he asks her to run away with him and she agrees. And then he asks her to marry him. And she says, yes, after saying, Oh, it's so sudden. (laughs) And he tells her that they're going to get married and have zero plants. And she's like, you're talking strange again, Seymour. (laughs) because She doesn't know what's going on. And she runs off to pack her things because they're going to get married that night. We cut to the shop and we can see that Seymour is in a suit and has packed all of his things into a suitcase. And he's trying to sneak past Audrey, too, who appears significantly larger than when we saw her last, but still knocked out. And he makes it to the door and thinks that he's scot-free. Feed me! Audrey, too, says that she needs to eat and Seymour says that he will run down to the market and buy a bunch of meat. And that's all he's going to give her. And he heads off. And she like kind of concedes to that. Right. Yeah. As soon as he's out of sight, Audrey to break some roots out of the, uh, the pot. Right. And drags herself closer to the cash register and opens it and gets a quarter out and then goes to the pay phone <laughs> to make a call. Now, kids, the thing that the plant is talking on is called a payphone, <laughs> and you have to find these and put money in them and actually know somebody's number to dial and call. Yeah, they don't take Venmo. Nope, nope, nope. Shit never gets old. Anyways, Audrey quickly figures out on the phone, because if I didn't say so, Audrey 2 calls Audrey 1. And... <laughs> She figures out she's talking to the plant because she can see it through the window. Cause like I keep saying they're across the street and for some reason she decides she should run across the street and check out the giant talking fucking plant that just called her on the phone. And Audrey too lets Audrey know that she's drying up and needs a drink. And Audrey goes to get her some water and then realizes the plant wants to fucking eat her. So Seymour runs in only to find Audrey one in Audrey two's mouth. We can just see like her feet and the bottom of her wedding dress kicking, right? She's not quite eaten yet, just in the mouth. And I'm not really sure how she didn't get impaled by the giant teeth. Yeah. But anyways, 
Seymour takes her out into the alley and he explains that the plant can talk people into doing what it wants them to. And that he started to get famous and she liked him and he couldn't give up the fame and her liking him. And she explains that she always liked him and doesn't need for him to be famous. And then they break into a duet of suddenly Seymour so it can get caught in your head again. <laughs> and I didn't mention it earlier, but once Seymour starts telling Audrey to... It's actually Audrey Jr. I didn't put that in my notes for the differences. When Seymour starts telling Audrey Jr. in the 1960s Corman flick that he's not going to feed her anymore, it mind controls him. Like, it literally mind controls him to go do shit. Oh, okay. Like a zombie. Yeah. So, I, I think that's what that line was supposed to be. It was kind of a throwback to that. Okay, nice. But as they really get into this duet of Suddenly Seymour, and I'm just fucking head banging along, they get interrupted by Jim Belushi, who approaches them with a business offer. He wants to break Audrey 2 into little Audrey 2s and send them to flower shops all across the world and get one in every household. They could be big. Bigger than us. They basically tell him to fuck off and realize <laughs> that the plant must die at this point or that's what will happen. Yeah, hula hoops don't so, eat people. <laughs> right, they don't, they don't. But Seymour confronts Audrey 2 and says that he realizes that this was the plan the whole time. No shit, Sherlock. Audrey 2 lets him know that he has no power here and that this is how shit's going to go down. Audrey 2 then breaks out of the pot entirely so that it can move around via the roots and we can see that little buds have grown out now. Aw, little babies. They're so cute. <laughs> Except for they'll fucking eat your face. Yeah, yeah. And they break in as backup singers into the song so that Audrey 2 can explain who she is. I'm just a mean green mother from out of space and I'm Seymour has Mushkin's revolver and points it at the plant, who takes it from him very easily and starts to shoot around him to scare him. And Seymour tries to run away, but gets pinned in the room, and he keeps trying to go for different exits and an axe as Audrey 2 rips the room apart. It eventually brings the entire roof down on Seymour, and this exposes some live wires, which we... Think Seymour's dead till his hand reaches out of the rubble, grabs a wire, and sticks it on Audrey 2's roots, electrocuting her and her buds and killing them. Oh, shit! I love fucking Levi Stubbs' voice in the show. <laughs> yes. Audrey approaches the smoke and rubble to see if Seymour's okay, and then we get a few beats of suddenly Seymour as he walks out triumphant and they embrace. We see them run up to their white picket fence house from the dream sequence earlier, and she's in a wedding gown, so we know that they're now married. And the chorus girls come walking by in front of the picket fence like they're bridesmaids in the dresses, and we can see a little Audrey Two Bud growing in their garden. Credits. For the theatrical release. <laughs> there was a different ending that was shot that everyone thought was too dark, and they had to shoot a new one. It was actually closer to the original film's ending and the theatrical play's ending. Because in the play, Seymour dies, just like in the movie. Okay. But in the original ending of this film, Seymour and Audrey are eaten by Audrey 2. And then Audrey 2 proceeds to take over the world with her buds after being mass marketed and distributed like Jim Belushi's character you know, suggested, right? Yeah. And I'm assuming that's why he was there and that scene was there was to set up this ending and they just kind of kept it. This ending used to only be able to be found in black and white, but 
they finally completed it and colorized it for the 2012 Blu-ray release. And you can see the ending on YouTube. The plants are gigantic Godzilla-like huge gaiju creatures. Yes. Destroying the world. And it looks cool as fuck. You can see them taking out buildings in different countries. And the screeners were a bunch of whiny bitches and didn't like it and wanted a happy ending. So they changed the ending. Yeah, I like that even better. I, I, I don't like <laughs> happy endings. Like that other ending's so fucking cool. Yes and no. I really like the other ending. So definitely yes on the other ending. The happy ending wasn't so out of place to me in this movie because it was a musical. <laughs> and it was very upbeat the whole time, you yeah. know. So it just kind of fit like a play, in my opinion. Um the original ending also had an extra song called Don't Feed the Plants, sung by Audrey Two while she's taking over the world. It was kind of cool. <laughs> If you've never seen this movie, it's really fun. Watch it. It's at least currently on HBO Max. I didn't feel like breaking my DVD out of storage, and I luckily found it on their streaming. It could be somewhere else, but it's a lot of fun if you haven't seen it. It was made in the 80s. The practical effects still hold up to this day because they're practical. You actually have this giant moving plant in camera. And it looks great. And who would have thought fucking Rick Moranis could sing? <laughs> <laughs> Steve Martin's hilarious is the crazy dentist. Oh yeah. The, the movie's crazy. Cause it's, it's, it's so cute. Like, yeah. And like, I mean, right down to it being like three simple sets and da, 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 da. And the songs, and it's like, this is adorable. And by the time you get to the dentist scene, it's like, holy shit, this is a lot of dark subject matter. <laughs> that this right. shit is wrapped in. And it's, it's, it's really dark from spousal abuse to man eating plants from space. <laughs> It's right. crazy being, being broke as shit down on Skid Row. Right, right, right. It's a lot of dark themes and uh, the the song, like I said earlier, like really kind of makes it fun. It, it takes shitty things and makes them fun. Like we were laughing earlier at some of the abuse jokes, but it's just because of the way they're done in that movie. It's so ridiculous. It's not realistic in any way. And then you have the songs adding to it with comical lines and this movie's a fucking classic that does not need to ever be remade. And honestly, I want to see the fucking play. <laughs> I'm added to the bucket uh, list. As I say, I think it still runs. But in all honesty, I think this was the first musical I ever saw in my life. Oh, wow. I can't think of one before it. I mean, well, aside from like Disney. I might have saw Sound of Music or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and cartoons. I just meant like first live action theatrical film that was a musical and it, it stands out a lot more when it's live action than when it's an animated cartoon. Cause it, for some reason doesn't seem out of place to me in an animated movie. I know. I right. I grew up on Disney movies, but when you see real people doing it, like a, a dentist torturing people, it just kind of, just kind of adds something. <laughs> and I've seen others since some are funnier than others. You know, you got repo, the genetic opera, which is some dark shit yes. and interesting and not really funny. And then you have things like cannibal, the musical, <laughs> which is absurd, <laughs> which is fucking absurd. And it's made by the South park guys and it's a trauma flick. And, um, I'm trying to remember the old, uh, poster taglines. I used to have the poster in my room when I was a kid. It was like when Oklahoma meets and it was something fucking ridiculous. Yeah. Jaws, I think or something, but you wouldn't have any of these horror musicals. If it wasn't for 1975's Rocky horror picture show. All right, so this one was directed by Jim Sharman, who also directed the shitty sequel, Shock Treatment. Wait, what? Yeah, Shock Treatment is the sequel to Rocky Horror Picture Show. I didn't know there was a sequel to Rocky Horror Picture Show. Oh my God, it's so bad. It's okay. worse than the remake. There was a fucking remake? <laughs> yeah. Now, it was written by Jim Sharman and more importantly, Richard O'Brien, um, which we're going to get all into Richard O'Brien. They wrote Shock Treatment, which still sucks. 
<laughs> so to tear into this cast, we of course have Tim Curry as Frankenfurter. Oh yeah. <laughs> who we've talked about before because of legend and clue over 250 other credits, but this was his first real film. Stop eating my sesame seed cake. I always think of that line from fucking Congo and it's not even him saying it. It's just the look on his face when, when that's told to him. But I, I always think of legend and clue primarily, right? Even though I've seen him in so many fucking things, but did you ever realize how much he played villains on almost every after school or Saturday morning cartoon or TV show we ever watched? Oh yeah. Like I can only think like the cyber squad. I can't think of the fuck they're called. There was like a couple of those power ranger. Yeah, knockoffs. Yeah, you the before. bad guy on two of them. Yeah. And, and all sorts of cartoons. I don't know. This guy is a fucking legend and his, his voice acting work was obviously fucking really big because of his unique voice, but I've never seen him in something that I didn't like him in. Oh yeah, totally. Um, we've also got Susan Sarandon as Janet Weiss, who's way more known for drama and comedy. Um, super famous actress. Yeah. Not anything this absurd, but Hey, she's got this one. Um, Barry fucking Bostwick as Brad Majors. (laughs) Of course he was in spy hard spin city. So fucking funny in spin city. Like the only (laughs) reason to watch spin city. (laughs) We've got Richard O'Brien as riff raff reprising his role from the stage and really about the only other thing Richard O'Brien has been in that wasn't Rocky horror was shock treatment. (laughs) (laughs) We've got Patricia Quinn as Magenta who I fucking love in this movie, who was also on stage. We'll get into all that here in a minute. Um, She was in shock treatment. She was in doctor who she was in Lords of Salem. She's been in quite a few things. We've got little Nell Campbell as Columbia again from the stage and again (laughs) was in shock treatment and great expectations. (laughs) Of all things. That's random. Jonathan Adams as Dr. Scott, uh, who did a lot of TV, passed away a few years ago, if I remember correctly. Okay. And then we've got Meatloaf as Eddie, Mm. who was also in the American version of the stage show, which we're going to get into all that heavily here in a minute, (laughs) who was, of course, in fucking Fight Club. Bob's got bitch tits. (laughs) But before he had bitch tits, he was in this, which is actually his first film. And we still don't know what that one thing that he wouldn't do was. (laughs) (laughs) And to round it out, we have Charles Gray as the criminologist who did a crap ton of crime TV and a couple of Bond films. Um, He is the criminologist, but he plays the role of a narrator. And I will refer to his character as the narrator throughout this review. Okay. I normally don't do this. We normally don't do this. But costume design. It was Sue Blaine. And there's this whole rumor that her costume designing on this film actually made its way through management to the Sex Pistols and may have actually been a bigger part of the whole, which was taken more from greasers. But anyways, the whole jacket with the pins, da, 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 da. I really think a lot of that was happening naturally, primarily in London and the UK um, as far as the punk scene goes. But a lot of people credit like the whole start with the Sex Pistols to actually go back to Sue Blaine and a couple other people. Okay. Another thing we usually don't go into as far as this part of it, just straight up makeup, not makeup effects. Uh, Pierre LaRoche um, actually helped create uh, Ziggy Stardust. As far as the oh, character I can see that. for David Bowie. Yeah, yeah. So that's who we had for makeup on this thing. So there was a lot of interesting things happening um, once this shit went on. But let's go to where it came from. And uh, it started off as the first thing O'Brien ever wrote. He had just been fired from Jesus Christ Superstar. 
because he was Jesus. Work, working on that. And uh, he was asked to do a 20-minute bit at an EMI Christmas party. And uh, he told some jokes, and he performed a song he'd written, a song called Double Feature Picture Show. Okay. Um, later on, all on his own, he fleshed out that song into a full-blown musical. And uh, he cited The Day the Earth Stood Still and Valley of the Dolls as major influences for this. Um, the original acoustic demos for the musical are fucking awesome and they're on YouTube and it's just him Ooh. and acoustic guitar, a couple of other singers, just like raw. It sounds like somebody sitting in a bedroom. It's so good. Uh, I'm going to have to check that out, <laughs> but, uh, that was it. It was going to be nothing more than a low budget musical that paid homage to the low budget genre flicks of the past. And it actually played in the rehearsal room of the Royal court theater, but then nice. it took off. And so the show ends up going right downstairs into the main theater, starts getting legs like crazy, and it hit the road for several years. And once it made it to America, then came a movie deal from Fox. So uh, <laughs> this is fucking hilarious to me. So Fox comes in and says, all right, here's all this money, and here's our list of big budget stars we won in the film. And O'Brien said, right. No. And uh, Fox is like, okay, well, then we're going to cut your budget. And O'Brien said, okay. <laughs> and they said, okay, well, we want two small-time American actors for the leads, Brad and Janet. They're not the leads, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> the shit that was being kicked around with the big money were Vincent Price being discussed as the criminologist, Mick Jagger. That would have been awesome. Yeah, that would have been awesome. But these, <laughs> Mick Jagger for Frank and Steve <laughs> Martin for Brad. <laughs> I, I could do Steve Martin for Brad after seeing him as the dentist, man. I, I just love Steve Martin. I've always loved Steve Martin, okay? But it would have been a very different movie, I think. Yeah. A few other neat things about this before we get into it. I'm sorry. I, I really like this movie. I know way too much about it. My wife has this tattooed on her ass. She's got the mouth tattooed. Like, she loves this movie and, like, knows way too much about it. This is fucking fascinating. I had no clue. She's my cousin-in-law. Never heard the story of the Rocky Horror Picture Show tattoo on her ass. That's yeah, yeah. fascinating. I'll bring this up at the next holiday dinner. So originally the flick was going to be black and white until Frank showed up, a la Wizard of Oz, but they dumped that idea. Oh, that'd have been so cool. And it was a box office bomb, like so bad. It was pulled from theaters in allegedly three days. Now, legend has it that a print was stolen and being passed around and created so much buzz that Fox said, okay, we'll re-release it to a smaller market for midnight showings only. This is basically how Deadpool came out. Yeah. So regardless of how it happened, it did get re-released as a midnight run and the freaks come out at night. And once the midnight <laughs> screenings audience participation started happening, um, it fucking blew up. Now, I remember the first time I saw this movie, it was on like PBS or something because it was a whole thing about the fandom surrounding the movie. And I didn't know what I was watching. I was young enough that my mom had to tell me what the movie was. And I didn't. I was like, oh, they throw rice in this scene, they throw hot dogs in this scene, and they stand up and act out stuff. I didn't know until recently how the actual script for the audience participation is full-blown sex jokes before, after, and during, and within every line, every song, full-blown horny hedonistic drunks. Like, <laughs> their jokes, like, 
there's so many jokes about uh, Janet being covered in cum, choking on dicks, like what? And, it's, and it's like that for every character through the whole movie. Like in the play, or, or no, where? no, in the movie. Like this is what the audience participation thing is that they never show you on the news or in the documentaries oh, back okay. in the day because it's so vulgar. Like when uh, when the criminologist says that uh, the night was dark, low, and dreary. Like the audience participation is supposed to right before that yell, "Tell us about Tina Turner's tits, dark, low, and dreary." Like that's how the whole thing what? is. The fuck. So it was all these people make it was Mystery Science Theater 3000. Like, yeah, that's all it was full blown in the theater. And people had so much fun going to do that. The movie got popular, which is just insane. The first time I saw this, I was a bit younger, but it, it was like on Halloween night. And it came on, you know, fucking NBC or something <laughs> when I was a kid. And, and I'm surprised my fucking mom let me watch it. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> the way she was, oh, yeah. she let me watch Stephen King stuff, but as like religious, she was, I was surprised she, she was, she was down with this one, but I was a kid that I didn't really understand what was going on. You yeah. Know? Well, and it was the, the, the wife says the same thing. She was allowed to watch all this horror when she was a kid, but, but her mom was like, no, you don't need to see a man dressed like that. Like when you're young enough, they're like, there's, I understand a lot of shit from, you know, you want to raise your child the way you want to raise your child. But I think some of the stuff in this movie that people got scared about, a kid didn't know. It's just like, oh, it's songs and stuff. Yeah. Like, they're not thinking. I just thought it was about. funny that he was dressed like a woman. Yeah. And had makeup on, right? And I knew it was the Clue guy. I think I, I think I had already <laughs> seen Clue, and I knew it was the Clue guy. So it was extra hilarious to me. <laughs> um, the opening of the movie was the first time Fox allowed the opening music to be changed during the 20th Century Fox logo. The mouth in the sky is from a piece of art called The Lovers, and that was right. also what inspired the Rolling Stones logo. All the actors actually sang their songs in this movie, except for Rocky. Mm -hmm. He sucked. Um, Trevor White <laughs> came in and did his singing. And uh, one more quick thing, and then the tons of stuff sprinkled in, is the longest-running stage show of all time and the longest-running theatrical release of all time. Both still run. Um, of course, the musical everywhere, everybody's the tons of production companies that do it. But uh, the movie still runs every weekend at the Mu Museum Lippspiel in Germany. I would love to see one of the, you know, midnight theater showings of this where, where people are acting it out. I've never been to one and I've, I've always wanted to go and they do them here locally. Yeah. So, so on to the flick. So we open with bright red lips on a black background and you're actually seeing Patricia Quinn's lips and you're hearing Richard O'Brien's voice. Now, in the original musical, Magenta's character would sing it as an opening for the stage show uh, as an usherette, but they change it for the film. And the song, of course, is science fiction double feature, and it name drops like fucking crazy. At the late night, double feature, to show. As you said earlier, the Gimme's cover of it is fucking awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was pumped going back to watch his movies. I hadn't seen it in at least 10 years. And I was hearing the, the punk cover, the song in my head, and then they start doing it. And I'm like, huh, it's not how I remember it. It's so <laughs> fucking slow. <laughs> so we finish the song and we then find ourselves at the end of a wedding in wonderful Denton. We meet Brad and Janet. And when Brad sees the newlywed couple's car and the way Janet beat the other girls to the bouquet, he breaks into my third favorite song of the film, Damn It, Janet. Oh, Brad. Oh, Janet. Oh, Janet. Oh, 
And uh, he does, because on the side of the car, it says she got hers and now, or wait, wait till they get home. She got hers. Now he's going to get his, which is just (laughs) real funny. So Brad, during the song, Brad proposes while the American Gothic crew prepares the uh, two walled church for a child's funeral in the background. Now, there's a lot to unpack in what I just said there. Yeah. yeah. The, the church, they only built the front wall and the back wall. That's why once you're inside, you never see left and right. You only see front and back. It's all they could afford to build. And the coffin that they have set up for the funeral is actually very small. It's supposed to be a child's coffin. And of course, mm-hmm. the American Gothic painting, will, and we come back to that by the end of the movie. Because, um, of course, you're seeing characters that you're going to see look very different here shortly, and most people right. don't realize it on first watch. Which uh, is very Wizard of Oz-esque in its yes, own right. Yes, exactly. Like, I feel like a lot of stuff in this movie was inspired from Wizard of Oz, because I just watched it with my six-year-old daughter, Wizard of Oz, that is, for the first time last weekend, because she wanted to see it and hadn't seen it before. Okay. And I had just watched this for the podcast. I'm like, they really did take a lot of inspiration from that and, and try to put it into this movie, especially when I was reading about the wanting to go black and white to color. That just kind of solidified it, like, in my head permanently there. Yep. Now, in the song, we also learned that Brad and Janet met in Dr. Scott's class, so they head off to tell him the good news. And uh, we cut to the criminologist, who I'll bounce back and forth, I guess, between calling the criminologist and the narrator, who gives us a little exposition about what's going on while flipping through the police statements in the Denton Affair casebook. It was a night out they were going to remember for a very long time. They then run into a dead-end road sign. <clears throat> Foreshadowing. <laughs> and then they get a flat. And uh, I think the dead end road signs, like, cause the marriage, the night, everything's going to fucking fall apart. (laughs) And uh, with the flat and no spare, they step out into the rain and head back to the creepy castle. They passed a ways back. (laughs) Now the castle they use in this movie is Oakley court. And it was once the home of this production company called hammer films. Have you ever heard of them? Uh -uh. (laughs) Well, they did lots of B movies. (laughs) You mean like all of the Christopher Lee Dracula movies? Yeah, yeah, that Hammer films. <laughs> and uh, so, man, I grew up on that shit. <laughs> so a lot of shit was shot there in the uh, from the fifties all the way through the seventies, and it's actually now a hotel. And it was set to be demolished and was actually partially dismantled when they started filming Rocky Horror Picture Show there. Um, so it kind of helped save it. Is it still currently a hotel? Yes, it is still currently a hotel. People have Rocky Horror Show themed weddings there. Like it, it's still a thing. I want to go. Somebody invite me to your wedding. Okay. Just send the invitation to podcast at gmail.com. I'm coming. Okay. <laughs> so as they approach the castle, Janet sees a light from the castle in the distance. And my second favorite song, just for the opening of the song, kicks in. In the velvet darkness. So uh, the song talks about finding light in the darkness, and uh, we get some of Riff Raff singing from the castle up in a third story window. 
And his lines talk about letting the light into his life. And uh, in that shot through the window, O'Brien is literally standing on exposed beams because the upstairs flooring had rotted away when the lead roof was removed from the castle. This place Mm-mm. was really fucking dilapidated. And I should have mentioned this in the opening. A lot of people don't get this. And I sure as shit didn't get this until researching the movie. Um, this movie is about a lot of things. And I'll touch on them as they come up. But hearing O'Brien say one particular thing blew my mind. And he said, the whole story is about the fall. It's Adam and Eve and the forbidden fruit. Like, holy shit. That yeah. is what it's about. <laughs> we'll get into some more nuggets about what O'Brien was really pulling from as he was making this. And one really funny line in an interview. Riff Raff then greets the couple at the door. You're all wet. Yes, it's raining. And uh, she'll soon have pneumonia. It's so ridiculous, all of it. But but it's true. Susan Sarandon really did get pneumonia filming. She <laughs> did. I forgot about that. Because they're, they're all cold. They're all wet. They had one room with a heater in the castle, and that was the heating room that everybody would run to to get warm and dry and then run back out to film. So uh, once in, they're told they're very lucky to have arrived on such a special night. It's one of the master's affairs. <laughs> then Magenta comes to life over on the stairs. Lucky him. You're lucky. He's lucky. I'm lucky. We're all lucky. <laughs> a uh, casket grandfather clock with a real skeleton in it. Um, it's what they walk past. Nice. That is legit real. And uh, the house is actually filmed with a bunch of old hammer set pieces, too, which I don't remember if I have this in here later on, but this film has Easter eggs hidden throughout it. Literal Easter eggs are hidden really? in shots throughout the movie. And people had already been doing it before this movie, but people cite this film as being why they're called Easter eggs because Easter eggs were literally hidden in the film. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's true, but people say it. But uh, so they're inside. They open the door to the grand fucking gallery, ballroom, whatever the fuck it is. The clock strikes 12 and the time warp begins. It's just a jump to the left. With your hands on your hips. I'm not a big fan of this song. That's unfortunate. It's my favorite song in the entire movie. <laughs> and did you see the uh, Tenacious D cover from last year? I did not. It's pretty funny. They have a lot of celebrities in there, too, and they have some of the original actors and actresses back doing lines in it. And it was made during quarantine. Oh, okay. Sweet. I will have to look at that. So the song continues on with participation from Columbia and the Transylvanians. The song is actually a late addition to the play just to add runtime to the play. The play was too short and the song was added. Really? Yes. Now, if you listen to the lyrics, you'll have Riff Raff sound like he's describing madness inducing teleportation and Magenta's lines describe seeing all space and time while Columbia's part talks about meeting a snake eyed man with the devil's eyes. Holy shit. It's the omnipotence, omnipresence of God in the, in the darkness, the, the snake in the, like it's, it's all right there on one hand, as far as it being about the fall, but for the sake of the plot of the film, it also talks about this madness inducing teleportation. I wonder what that's all about. And here I was thinking the whole time the song is about tripping on LSD. (laughs) No, but. When you trip on LSD, you do the time war. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, so 
this wholesome middle America couple, <laughs> presumably virgins, <laughs> are really freaked out at this point. They right, right. And that's what you're supposed to get out of the, the writing on the car at the wedding. And now he'll get his because yeah. it was the 70s. People are still saving themselves for marriage, supposedly. Well, this is supposed to be taking place in the 50s is what you're supposed exactly. to be. Exactly. Like 50s yeah. and 60s. Yeah. Which they kind of did a loose job on that. Um <laughs> There's a lot of things loose in this film. <laughs> so as the tight ones try to <laughs> try to back away, they run into a glammed out vampire looking dude. Wait, that's one hell of an outfit. Because <laughs> the cape drops and it's sweet transvestite time. Don't get strung out by the way I look. Don't judge a book by its cover. Much of a man by the light of day, but by night I'm one hell of a lover. I'm just a sweet transvestite from transsexual Transylvania. So Frankenfurter then asked the couple to stay the night and maybe a bite. And you'll notice Columbia takes a bite out of Frank's leg or acts like it, which is more foreshadowing. And uh, he also says he's been building a man with blonde hair and a tan. Uh, (laughs) And I just got to say that Tim Curry is ballsy as fuck in this movie. And of course, he was ballsy as fuck in in the live play. And uh, that's why he's so good and so over the top in this. Like, I've been doing this. I know exactly what I'm doing. And I'm so glad they butted heads with Fox and Fox didn't right. get to have as much involvement in this film as they originally planned on. Cause you uh, gotta understand this is the seventies. This whole fucking movie is so risque. I don't even know how it came out. I know. Right. So, uh, let's move on to our next set. So come up to the lab and see what's on the slab. I see you shiver with anticipation. This movie is so fucking campy. Oh, yeah. And if if you don't go in for the camp, you're not going to have a good time. Oh, no, hell no. There is no way to take this movie seriously. You you cannot be a Josh and watch this movie. You have got to let everything go and just go along for the ride. (laughs) And it took me decades, literally decades, to come around to this movie. So before the couple gets to head upstairs, they are stripped down to their undies by Riff Raff and Magenta. And uh, Columbia seems to be a little bit jealous. So to the pink room we go. What? (laughs) That is not euphemism. Oh, is it not in this case? No. (laughs) So as the elevator comes up into the pink room, like the reveal and the music, like everything sounds so throwback sci-fi with a little and the fucking shaky camera. Everything is so good. Um, You say that, but you must not watch Doctor Who because they still use those sound effects (laughs) to this day. So in this room, there's this big ass odd control panel, nude statues everywhere and something under a sheet. You'll notice that uh, Dr. Frank is now in this uh, this green smock dress thing with pink gloves and uh, he's got this pink triangle on his chest and going to get a little morbid here for a second. But uh, upside down pink triangles were used to identify homosexuals by the fucking Nazis, like they would identify the Jews with yellow stars. And I uh, had no fucking clue. I didn't know any of that. <laughs> the right side up pink triangles were later adopted as a symbol of gay pride. 
And I was always curious about why is that on the outfit and didn't know until researching this movie, this whole thing surrounding that. I never heard about that growing up. It, like I heard a lot of shit the Nazis did, but I don't want to think about what else they did once they identified them. But anyways, Nazis suck. It's crazy the amount of shit that I catch in a film. And I just thought it was an accessory. <laughs> that's what I always thought. <laughs> no thought past that. So that's pretty deep, though. That's interesting. They were able to put that in there like that. Yeah. So um, Frank goes on to say he has found the secret to life itself. And while he's going on this whole diatribe, Tim Curry's delivery has got to be what got him the darkness gig. Because there's some lines in there that even feel like right the cadence of them go right along with darkness. When, when, when darkness is a little uppity, not when he's subdued, but it's like, oh my God, it's so over the top, but it's not corny. Like it still works. Like the, he does a couple of fourth wall breaks in this and an earlier song, looking at the camera and when he throws the fucking water at the camera, which was actually wine. They literally had water coolers with wine in them on set. Anyways, Tim Curry's so fucking good in this movie. <laughs> he is, he is. And let's be honest, he got the darkness role because of his voice. The same reason why he was a bad guy in every kid show growing <laughs> up. <laughs> he has the voice, man. It's it's the cadence, like you said, the deep, slow, very sophisticated talking just sounds evil. Yeah, it's so theatrical. So the sheet in the background is raised and a mummy in a tank is revealed. And Frank then drips all this different colored water into the now rainbow tank and Rocky Horror is born. Sword of Damocles kicks in and it's not a very good song in my opinion. And uh, the, the song describes Rocky trying to come to terms with his existence. He was just born and he doesn't understand. And the only way out is down. While the song's going on, you've got Frank chasing him around like Bugs Bunny style, like so smitten, yeah. falling all over himself. And uh, I buy every second of it. So the song finishes up. <laughs> They're standing around the tank. And uh, Frank's like, is he gorgeous? Isn't he great? He's like, what, just fishing for people to start complimenting. <laughs> and uh, Columbia goes, he's okay. <laughs> <laughs> and Frank's pissed off about this. And uh, that's one of the lines in the audience participation script. When she goes, he's okay. You're supposed to scream. You blew it, bitch. And then you scream, <laughs> get your tits off my tank. Like <laughs> it's constant. And, okay. Uh, I didn't know there's an audience script until you said, Oh this, dude, so. it's bonkers. So uh, Frank then turns around to Janet, the, you know, newly arrived conservative girl across the room in her undies. And uh, ask what she thinks of him. And she's like, oh, well, I don't like men with too many muscles. And uh, he's also got <laughs> a belly button plug, if you pay attention. What's pulled from Frankenstein's monster and, like, in this movie and it's kind of cobbled together, like, I get the whole, oh, well, he was born, so he can't have a belly, or he wasn't born, so he can't have a belly button. But then when we get into the Eddie stuff, he was put together with pieces of corpses, like the Frankenstein story. So, like... <laughs> I think the belly button was unnecessary is what I'm getting at. He could have just gotten a torso from somewhere. I don't know. But it's, it's the rules are very loose. <laughs> I never caught that, but I'm just assuming that we had the first experiment and then this is the improved experiment. And he figured out how to create life versus bring life back. Yes, but we'll get into some detail about that when we get to Eddie. Okay. So Frank then takes us into I Can Make You a Man. And uh, during the song, we see this deep freeze in the background and all of a sudden the switch on it falls down and uh, a motorcycle riding Eddie comes bursting out to sing hot patootie. 
And uh, <laughs> if you listen, this is Eddie's love song to Columbia. Why does Eddie have a cut going around his head? And why was he in the freezer? Well, we'll soon find out. <laughs> so after like looking a little miffed that he's not in the spotlight anymore, Frank eventually joins back into the song. No, wait, he's ax murdering Eddie. <laughs> <laughs> It is pretty fucking like, what just happened? It's like, you're not taking the spotlight off of me, you son of a bitch. So that escalated quickly. And Frank Mm -hmm. then finishes up singing, I can make you a man. And even Janet joins in this time because she comes in with her really high line. She's like, I'm a muscle fan now or some shit like that. Um, She's really into it. So once the number's over, Frank and Rocky are now wed and they head off to bed for some coitus extracurricular activities. <laughs> yeah. With handcuffs. <laughs> Shit. So after yet another internet outage and two days, we're going to finish this episode, right? Uh, maybe <laughs> if anything seems inconsistent from here on out, it's because Josh's work internet went out when we were recording on Monday and we've had to come back Wednesday to try to finish the episode. So here we go. So the narrator hops back in to let us know that Brad and Janet are now the only guests left. And uh, not only are they a little uncomfortable, but they've now been taken to separate bedrooms. And uh, it's kind of neat because you got the, the the pinkish red room and then the blue room, which is obviously the same room, just with different lighting. Um, <laughs> And we've got uh, the help being uh, Riff Raff and Magento watching what's about to unfold on CCTV. And uh, we see see Janet in bed first, and Brad comes in and, and pounces on her, and they're going to get it on. And, oh, shit, it's Frank. And uh, <laughs> so Janet resists at first, but uh, then she goes for it anyway. And uh, meanwhile, we get to see Riff Raff kind of fucking with Rocky with a candelabra with the lit candles. Like, go away, yeah. monster. Like, good little little throwback to the the old school horror films and uh <laughs> then we cut to the other bedroom and we see janet pounce on brad but oh no it's frank again and <laughs> brad gives in to frank's advances a little bit quickly because you know you got to give yourself over to absolute pleasure so then their blow bang is interrupted by riffraff letting frank know that rocky has escaped he's on the castle grounds <laughs> <laughs> and magenta has released the dogs <laughs> And uh, Janet's feeling a little ashamed and she heads off to find Brad and she ends up in the pink room, which is where uh, Riff Raff and Magenta were watching this shit on CCTV. And she sees uh, Brad having a post coitus smoke with Frank. (laughs) So she's like, oh, shit, what's going on? Well, like, you're just as guilty as him. Come on. So upon seeing this, Janet, of course, starts to cry. And then she hears this noise coming from the Rocky reveal sheet. And up under the sheet is Rocky. He's cut, cold, and crying. And uh, Janet then goes on to do a terrible job of dressing his wound. And she starts Mm. to get a little horny. And we cut back to the narrator, criminologist. And uh, he gives us a segue into Magenta and Columbia in their bedroom, now watching what is about to unfold on CCTV. And my favorite song kicks in. Uh, It's Touch, Touch, Touch Me. And the only reason it's my favorite song is because the opening piano reminds me of Blaster Master. And (laughs) the lyric, I've tasted blood and I want more, is fucking awesome. I was feeling done in Couldn't win I'd only ever kissed before You mean she... Uh-huh I thought there's no use getting Into heavy petting 
It only leads to trouble and seat wetting. Oh, so this song reveals that Janet was a virgin up until fucking Frank just a few minutes ago. Hmm. And uh, now that she's got some, she's ready to get all the banging she can get. And we even get flashes of several characters over her, what appears to be like missionary style. And, uh, you know, maybe implying that, you know, she might want to have sex with them too. You know, it's a really neat thing about how this whole world has opened up to her now is what we get out of it. And it's a pretty fun song, except for the chorus. A lot of the songs in this movie I really like, and then it gets to the chorus and it's kind of like, meh, but <laughs> whatever. So uh, this leads to Frank, Riff Raff, and Brad then coming into the pink room. And uh, Rocky and Janet are out of sight when they come into the room. They're not revealed yet. And uh, they see someone on the grounds via the CCTV. Master, we have a visitor. Hey, Scotty! <laughs> Dr. Everett Scott. You know this earthling, this person. I most certainly do. So Frank then goes on this rant about how Dr. Scott is working for the government as a UFO researcher and Brad must be in on it. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> ah, sending them in to scope out the castle grounds. <laughs> and it's, it's this is where the movie takes a really weird turn. It's already a weird movie, but here it's like, okay, is this plot? Is this subplot? What What's really going on? Because all we know is Dr. Scott taught a science class that Brad and Janet were in and right. what's all this shit about the government and UFOs. Cause, and, and I think Frank even says your government, like, Oh, where's Frank from? Is he from Germany? <laughs> I'm so glad you specified. Cause when you said this movie was starting to get weird, I was a little confused. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Frank then hits the uh, triple contact electromagnet, which is one of the many switches on the wall of switches we saw revealed earlier in the pink room. And uh, this magnet pulls the wheelchair bound Dr. Scott all the way into the pink room. And he, <laughs> he ends up crashing through the wall because they forgot to build an opening into the set. Cause on stage they would always just roll his ass in from the side of the set. Like, Oh, we okay. pulled him all the way here. And uh, so now he's there. <laughs> And uh, Frank then continues to all of his accusations towards Dr. Scott. And uh, Dr. Scott says, well, I was just looking for my nephew, Eddie. Like, what the fuck? And Janet thinks, what the fuck, too? Because she lets out a gasp and they all see her and Rocky in the tank with we just fucked all over their faces. Janet. Dr. Scott. Janet. Brad. Rocky. Doctor. 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 <laughs> Oh, so Magenta then announces that dinner is prepared. We cut to the dining room and the table setting's a little odd. You'll notice mismatched glasses and way too much silverware, some medical bowls and even a bedpan. And uh, <laughs> did not they, notice that they, uh, yeah, it's almost like aliens were setting the dinner table and didn't know what they were doing. <laughs> they start to chow down on the mystery meat when Dr. Scott asks about Eddie and Frank says that's a rather tender subject. <laughs> <laughs> and as soon as that said, Columbia in her Mickey mouse hat, um, excuses herself and she begins to wail as she walks away. And, uh, Dr. Scott says that he knew Eddie was in with a bad crowd, but it was worse than he thought. Aliens. And if you just pictured that guy from the History Channel, that is perfectly fine. <laughs> Dr. Scott then gives us Eddie's song that reveals that Eddie was quite the hell-raising heroin addict. What a guy. Makes you cry. And I did. But when things got really bad, he sent a note to Dr. Scott. I'm out of my head. Oh, hurry, or I may be dead. They must soon 
The song closes, and Frank responds by ripping the tablecloth off of the table to reveal that the table is actually a glass-topped coffin with what is left of Eddie inside of it. <laughs> um, the only person that knew that was about to happen were Tim Curry and O'Brien. They didn't tell anybody else that they were going to do an Eddie corpse reveal on the table. So we got s- semi-legitimate reactions in that shot. So I'm guessing that doesn't happen in the play then? No, no, no. That was that was okay. for the movie. It, I'm pretty damn sure it's for the movie. I, the whole the whole thing with Eddie's Teddy is a little. This is, we actually start to get, and I think I've got this towards the end. But this is the part of the movie where we start to get where like a couple of songs and scenes are actually out of order between the play okay. and the movie. They're still there, but they're just kind of mixed up. And we've already went past a spot where a song was skipped um, between the stage performance and the movie. It's a song Brad sings about Janet after finding out that she's been sleeping around. Okay, um, but we'll get we'll we'll get to a little bit more of that later. So uh, Frank then slaps Janet as she takes off, and Planet Schmanet Janet starts to play. Your apple pie don't taste too nice. You better wise up, Janet Weiss. Sour grapes. <laughs> yes. So you've got Frank chasing Janet and all this crazy shit going on. And eventually everyone ends up back in the pink room and Frank throws the switch on the sonic transducer, not to be confused with the dead boys, sonic reducer. That's different. (laughs) This traps Brad and Janet and Dr. Scott quickly deduces that it's some kind of molecular transport device, the same (laughs) kind Dr. Scott and the government had been working on. Only they seem to have perfected it. So uh, the group starts calling Frank a hot dog. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like repeatedly <laughs> and it's funny as shit and in the musical like the live recording one of the few like rare live recordings of i think it's it's the u.s cast um so it's not all the way back to london old but at least before the movie old um they do it for like a full three minutes like it does oh, that okay. whole thing where it's not funny anymore then it gets funny again that whole, whole bit it's great man um <laughs> But each time they call him a hot dog, Magenta hits the Medusa switch, turning each one of them into a mostly nude sculptures. And the cast members did do proper life cast for this scene. So Susan Sarandon's kind of topless in this movie. (laughs) Um, Columbia's had enough. She's been in the background seeing this shit go on. And she goes on a rant. And in her rant, she reveals that she and Frank were first an item, but he left her for Eddie. And then he left Eddie for Rocky, (laughs) named for the rocks in his head, (laughs) is what she says. (laughs) And this, of course, gets both her and Rocky Medusa. And uh, (laughs) Frank then asks if uh, splitting Eddie's brain with Rocky's was a mistake. So that whole thing kind of tells the story of like Frank has just been going through and using people up all the way to the point of being, I'm just going to make my own thing so it'll be a right. And that kind of goes back to the biblical tie-ins with, if you want to look at it that way, with with going with the fall and all of that, that, you know, you had, if you take the big biblical path and and, and God has the, the angels that, you know, nothing but uh, worship and servitude, da-da-da-da-da, no, I'm just quoting dogma. Um, and then you had, you know, Lucifer being like, well, I could do this better. And, you know, like you, 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 you created humans. They, 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 they get, they get choice. We, we have to do this. You know, that whole thing. It's just, I think it's really neat that there's, there's ties into this movie from a religious angle that I, I barely picked up on. And then O'Brien and in interviews being like, this is exactly what this is. And okay. we'll get into the, we'll get into the transvestite part later. <laughs> so anyways, 
So Magenta says that she's grown weary of this world and she wants to return to transsexual Transylvania. Frank says that she and her brother Riffraff have served him well and loyalty like that shall not go unrewarded. I ask for nothing, master. And you shall receive it in abundance. Back to the criminologist, who points out that just hours after their engagement, both Brad and Janet had tasted forbidden fruit. Duh, but kinda laying that on. Just making sure anybody who <laughs> didn't get the Adam and Eve references. <laughs> yeah, like 21-year-old Josh did not get it. So we're moving on to the floor show, where I would normally, movie-wise, say third act. But it's a play, so fifth act? Yeah. <laughs> um... Rose Tint My World kicks off the show, and Rose Tint My World has multiple movements in it, so I'll name them as we hit them, um, <laughs> all of which I will demonstrate for you now. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, one by one, the now Frankishly clothed Medusa people are brought back to life on stage, and uh, each one of them gets a verse of the song that basically says that this newfound lust is now all they crave, and uh, the rear curtain goes up to reveal Frank in front of a huge RKO backdrop, which originally they wanted to be the 20th Century Fox logo, and 20th Century Fox said, among other things, we've said no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Frank then goes into fanfare, also subtitled as Don't Dream It, and he says he got an itch for cross-dressing from seeing Fay Ray in King Kong. And uh, this is interesting to me because... Uh, this is the part where the part in the movie where Fat Mike cites a part of the inspiration for cross-dressing himself. Okay. Um, so I just thought that was kind of neat. So Frank finishes this part of the number and he jumps into this fog below the stage and the fog all reveals that he's jumped into this pool. Don't dream it. Be it. Don't dream it. Be And that specifically is what stuck with Fat Mike. It's like as soon as, as soon as that line started, it's like that's it, that's it, man. Don't 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 want it, don't wish for it, don't don't hope for it. Just fucking do it. <laughs> and th that's a good life lesson. Now, if you're like a like an aspiring criminal, that's probably not good. But uh, don't hold back. A lot of people, myself included, you're the only one holding you back. You know, if you if you if you want something and you fail, then you're just where you were before. Then what are you losing? right? Unless you make a really bad investment decision. Um, moving on. So as the group follows Frank down into the pool, it kind of kicks off this whole full-on orgy. I mean, everybody's underwater and all entwined, and they're just kissing and stuff. But it's really implied that this is just full-on cuddle puddle. <laughs> the amount of times you've said that in the past few episodes. <laughs> So Dr. Scott was frozen too. And we've seen him like off to the side of the stage. He hasn't participated in the song and the switch that's been demeducing demeducing everyone just falls. And this brings Dr. Scott back and he says, they've got to get out, but nope. Now he's singing and in fishnets. Cause like he gets to a line in the song where he's like, we must get away from them. This he pushes the, the blanket away. That's over his lap and he's rubbing his leg. And he's like, Oh no, I'm sexy now too. <laughs> It's so good. <laughs> and in the stage play in the U.S. version, Meatloaf played both Eddie and Dr. Scott. And when he got offered the deal, he's like, I'm not going to do a play that's not for me. It's like, no, 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 it's a musical. And he's like, okay. So he just read the songs, goes to rehearsal, 
starts to learn a little bit about what the movie's actually about. And he's like, I don't think this is for me. I'm just a conservative guy from Texas. I, I don't, I don't, I don't know about this. And then <laughs> Tim Curry comes into rehearsal in full wardrobe and makeup. Meatloaf goes, fuck it. I'm out. And leaves. Really? And, yeah. And actually gets a ticket for jaywalking as soon as he leaves the studio. <laughs> and they had to beg him to go ahead and be part of the show. And he decided to actually, he's like, okay, fine, whatever, whatever. And then he's, I'm going to read the script now. He's like, okay, okay, whatever, whatever, whatever. And it gets to Dr. Scott in the fishnets and meatloaf's like, I'm out again. Fuck it. I, you're not putting me in fishnets. There's no way right. I'm doing it. And once he actually did it, he started hamming it up. He'd get in trouble at shows for being way too into it. And I just think that's a really neat story for discounting something on the surface and then totally turning the corner and being into it. And that's neat. And it goes, it goes along with the movie. Just, just give yourself over to absolute pleasure. <laughs> so he did end up wearing the fishnets and doing the oh, same yeah. play. Oh, okay. <laughs> so uh, with this event, we've got everybody quote unquote turned and uh, the music kicks in for the final movement, which is wild and untamed thing. <laughs> the, whole, the whole group is, you know, full on horny wackos. And all of a sudden Riff Raff and Magenta bust in and they're dressed in like semi matching <laughs> uniforms. And they're dressed uh, fucking ridiculous is what they're dressed. <laughs> and Riff Raff, instead of having the American Gothic pitchfork, now has this pitchfork regun. And he has some words for Frank. But that last line when he's like, uh, engage the transport beam, and then he just kind of sits there and looks at Magenta for a second, like, yo, bitch, that's your cue. She's <laughs> like, whatever, like rolls her eyes at him and walks off. I love that. I love the banter between the two of them. It's so good in the movie. And uh, Frank screams, wait, and he makes an apology the only way he can, obviously, through song. And uh, he, he goes into, I'm going home. And the lyrics to this, in my opinion, really sound like O'Brien's battle with his own sexuality. Um, there's an interview I was listening to because um, O'Brien is, is openly transsexual. And I tried to go back and see, like, was there X amount of years that he tried to hide it in the public light and came out? Da, 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 da. Not that it's important, but just because of that, his, his struggle with that that he's talked about and how it ties into the movie. And, like, there's a uh -huh. lot of this in the movie that – is really just O'Brien trying to come to terms with his own sexuality, not, you know, an overtly gay thing for the gay community or anything like that. And I thought it was real interesting because he got asked in an interview, they said, uh, Dr. Frankenfurter, how on earth did you come up with that? And his response was, I looked in the mirror. And huh. my mind was just boom. Like, I get it now. I so get it now. Um and to hang on this for a second, because I, I read and heard some people online saying that the, the last person to review this movie should be, you know, a, a cis friggin white male, straight <laughs> conservative, blah, 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 whatever. 
guys, can we just stop putting labels on everything? Can we, can, can we please, can we not have infighting? Cause this movie was, this movie was absolutely huge for the gay community. I made the joke earlier in the review that the freaks come out at night at the midnight showings. And that was in reference to the people just hollering back at the screen, Mr. Science Theater 3000 style. But this was at a time when cops were beating up gay people. This is, I mean, it would, it really right. was a different time. And this was something that was hugely you know, something you could attach to if you were in that scene um, or if you're in that lifestyle. And I, I, I can't discount that at all. And as a straight white male, I would be remiss to not say that. Um, but let's not just make it about that. Let's look at all the cool things about the movie. That's all I'm saying. So Frank's apology song really doesn't change anything because Riff Raff raises his American Gothic pitchfork gun and tells <laughs> Frank that he and Magenta are leaving. But Frank will be left behind in spirit anyway. So no going home from Frank and oh shit, he's going to kill him. And uh, realizing what's about to unfold, Columbia, who's been over in the corner manning a spotlight because you've got it's it's fucking stage show. Like he needed his light during the song. <laughs> it's real dramatic. He's all wet, just got out of the pool and shit. It's it, it's really beautiful and shit. Anyways, <laughs> Josh is crying right now on the camera. <laughs> Not quite. That's from the back pain. Um, Columbia shrieks in protest, and Riff Raff spins around and zaps her. She's dead. Frank then starts climbing the curtains, the RKO backdrop curtain or the, the curtain in front of the RKO backdrop, um, trying to get away. Like, where's he going to go? And, uh, <laughs> he's then zapped and he falls to his death. So a sobbing Rocky then comes up to Frank, picks him up and he starts carrying him away and he starts climbing the RKO tower on the backdrop. And we've learned that it's an antimatter gun at this point that, uh, Riff Raff is shooting with, and it seems to have no effect on Rocky, like the horrible composited special effects, <laughs> but, which look just like the shit from back in the fifties. That's what it's so camp. It's so good. Um, but it's not working and he climbs higher and higher and the tower collapses and Rocky falls to his death as well. You killed them. But I thought you liked them. They like you. They didn't like me. They never liked me. But that line right there, that's a whole nother thing that got deeper meaning to me after after going through interviews when Riff Raff says, uh, they didn't they never liked me. Nobody likes me. Like, oh shit, this feels more personal again, like like O'Brien's own internal struggle and like coming out on the pages and shit. So, anyways, Riff Raff then tells the humans to leave because they're about to beam the entire house back to transsexual where they can do the time warp again. Uh, because they live on planet transsexual in the galaxy of Transylvania. A lot of people get that backwards. It's a lot to take in. (laughs) It is. Especially when you're like 13 and seeing it for the first time. I'm pretty sure I remember asking my mom when I was like single digit age, maybe barely double digit age. When I saw this first time on Halloween, what's a transsexual and, and, you know, just seeing the deer and headlights in her face and her saying, People from Transylvania. Oh, like Dracula, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's great. Because this would have have been, it would have been barely the 90s at best when I saw this the first time. Yeah, same for me. Um, But the the whole house, castle, actually blasts off. And it's just a cardboard picture. It's a picture of the house that they put on cardboard and cut out and raised (laughs) it with some smoke going. But uh, do you think that may have had any influence on peter jackson for bad taste no I mean, no i think I, lack of money <laughs> no no no, not the, on peter jackson. no 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 not the cardboard part just just the whole premise of the aliens blasting off in their house spaceship maybe 
Uh, I can't think of anything else where the whole house takes off besides these two films off the top of my head. So it's not <laughs> like it's a common trope or anything. Um, so the castle blasts off. We've got our humans left outside. And we close with the criminologist saying a few lines from the song Superheroes. And this song would actually close the show. Um, but it's kind of it's kind of dismantled a little bit in the movie. And what he says is, and crawling on the planet's face, some insects called the human race, lost in time and lost in space and meaning, Um, which is actually a really, really cool song. Um, (laughs) But uh, in the movie, we then immediately after those few lines go to science fiction, double feature reprise where we've got a little bit of lyrics that have changed, letting us know that, you know, Frank has gone to, you know, a distant planet, da 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 da, and then it's all over, and we get credits, and we went on a lot of topics throughout the coverage of this of what I think about it, and 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 thoughts on when I saw it and changing over time, and I love it, man. Um, it took me a long time to come around to it. Uh, I was dating a girl in my late teens that was like, we we gotta watch Rocky Horror Picture Show. And I'm like, hey, I remember that from when I was a kid. It's like kind of goofy and dumb. And I watched it and I was like, oh, this is a little bit more entertaining than I remembered. And then the wife being full blown obsessed and the amount of times I've watched it since meeting her, <laughs> like, like, okay, this is much more fun. And I, I, I get, I under, after a few watches of really understanding the story more, I was like, okay, this is, this is fairly well put together. And then like we do on this show after researching it, I'm like, oh my God, Richard O'Brien is like a musical genius. And even though he never really did anything else other than the shitty sequel, um, this is a really personal movie and a really personal musical. And I think it's really cool when people get to tell a personal story and people see it for whatever nuggets they take away for it and why they yeah. love it. And it and it grows, it grows legs and becomes a cult classic. And my God, cult classic gets thrown around a lot. This is yeah. legitimately a cult classic. Yeah. <laughs> It's one of them I wish I could get into it more and enjoy it like most other people do. Like, I would kill to see this in a theater with people acting it out in front of the the screen and stuff, right? Got to. Like I said before, and I don't think it's a bad movie, but this isn't one that's ever just, like, grabbed me. We have to watch all the time. And I think part of it's the songs, right? Because Little Shop of Horrors isn't a fantastic movie. It's... As far as a movie goes, there's not a whole lot there. It's just the songs carrying it, much like this film. But I like all the songs in that movie more, right? So it makes me watch it more. And Time Warp's the only song in here that I ever remember. Like, when I think about this movie, I remember any scene with Tim Curry, because he's fucking (laughs) fantastic in it, and the Time Warp song. And that's it, right? And Meatloaf's in it. Those are the three things that always stick out. And I guess it's kind of like some people just don't see how I love Star Wars like I do, right? <laughs> that, that's kind of how I feel about it. I'm like, man, I wish I enjoyed it on that level. That is ironic on many levels. But I'm the exact opposite as, or exactly the same as you, but with uh, Little Shop. Okay. I don't like any of the songs. It's funny. I like suddenly Seymour is the one that, that sticks with me <laughs> and somewhere that's green because of uh, – family guy but uh and it feels like a musical like it's all on a set da 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 like everything's kind of kind of in the same area um what i love about that movie is the really really dark subject matter in such yeah. a cute package <laughs> like that the 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 juxtaposition there is fascinating i think that's part of what i really like about little shop as well because as an adult you really do catch how dark everything is <laughs> in yeah. the background but to my kids they might as well be watching a muppets movie 
when they watch it with me, right? They just don't, they don't get all that. They just see the plant. And it's because, you know, the one time you see them try to eat somebody, it's Audrey and she doesn't really get hurt. It's not like she comes out chewed up or anything, right? Yeah. And to them, it's still just like this cutesy movie. But I don't know. They're, they're both completely different styles while being comedy musical horror films, which is crazy to me that obviously horror has lots of subgenres as we <laughs> exploit on the show on the regular, but you can take horror musicals and then fragment it even further. Oh, yeah. Because these movies do not have the same vibe. Oh, no. <laughs> In other movies we were looking at, like Repo and Anna and the Apocalypse, and I don't know, there's a list of them. Cannibal the Musical, we're going through. Like, none of them have the same vibe or fit in the same way. No, they don't. But these two at least felt like they could kind of go together <laughs> in some odd way. <laughs> well, when we were narrowing it down, I was like, well, at least we're picking two 80s movies. And then, nope, nope, <laughs> nope. <laughs> but it was a different one, and it was a fun one, and we have other horror musicals that we can do to revisit this subgenre uh, at some point down the road. Oh, yeah. Well, that's it for the horror musicals episode. So you guys are going to have to tune in on the next episode for our Halloween special. Is the Boogeyman real? As usual, guys, thanks for downloading the show and spreading the word. Please do not forget to rate and review us online. And please send us comments, questions, and suggestions to our email, sbyspodcast at gmail.com. We'd also love it if you could follow our Twitter and Instagram, both at sbyspodcast. See you guys on the next one. Thanks for listening. Why, with the right advertising, this thing can be bigger than hula hoops. Bigger than hula hoops?